So I'm wondering what it is that you expect from Jesus. What do you have to do to hold up your end of the bargain? What does Jesus have to do for you to hold up his end of the bargain? I put it right out there like that. Because without really saying it in that way, we still approach our relationship with God in a transactional way. We never say that, but we do. You can think of it like this. We really only have one language, don't we? I mean, the struggle you just had should make you sensitive to this. But our language for a relationship with God is transactional. There's really only one language. It's the language of our lives. At work, we give our time and we get a salary. If you're a student, you give your study and you get a grade. If you uh, go shopping, you pay the cashier and you get your groceries. Everything we do has this give and take sort of bargain that we agree to. Then, when it comes time for us to do business with God, we treat it the same way. We think, well, we'll do good things, we'll volunteer, we'll give money, we'll act morally. And then... God will bless us with comfort and health and peace and happiness. We're certain that if we apply biblical principles, right? You've heard this before. That we'll receive good outcomes. And we have this transaction that we try and negotiate with God. The problem is that God doesn't use that language. And so the bargain doesn't play out like we think that it should. Now, I know you're probably ready to fuss at me about this, which is fine. You should. Because we do talk about grace. But we act as though, and we feel as though, our relationship with God is about works. We talk about a relationship with God, yet we live as though there's a transaction with God. Now, if you recognize this even a little bit in your own heart, you're not the first person. John the Baptist was in prison with the very same thoughts. This is not what he signed up for. His disciples had to come to Jesus to get some kind of confirmation that yes, in fact, he was on the right path. They ask Jesus, are you the one? And I think that this is a question all of us are going to need to ask, isn't it? As we think about this exchange and this transaction, really, is Jesus the one? Is this really what we were signing up for? Jesus gave John's disciples a wonderful scripture-based affirmation that yes, in fact, Jesus was the promised one. And even though John was in prison, all was well. Then, Jesus turned to the crowd. See, there's a, there's a turn here as we get to our passage today. And he challenged the crowd 
about how they saw the world, about what they thought was going to happen in the transaction, what was really the relative value of the kingdom of heaven versus the status quo that they were used to. It looks to us, as we read it in just a moment, that it's a strange challenge. But I think it's one we need to think about because Jesus has been challenging our expectations his entire public ministry. I imagine the crowd overheard Jesus talking about John to John's disciples, and they wondered, what is up? Prison wasn't what they signed up for. That's not the transaction they thought they were executing. And if it can happen to one person, especially a prominent, famous, holy one like John, why wouldn't it happen to just anybody? And why, in fact, didn't Jesus do anything about it? And we'll see that the kingdom of heaven and the rule of Jesus has a different value system than we're used to. It comes as a gift, and it offers long-term joy, but in the short run, the kingdom of heaven will not fit nicely into our expectations. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7, and you'll recognize right away that Jesus is challenging the crowd about what they expect to happen. Matthew 11, beginning of verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? <laughs> A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And here in this text, Jesus tells us about John, and John sets up Jesus as king, the one who inaugurates the inbreaking of the rule of heaven. And the generation that they're part of cannot deal with it. John inaugurates the greatness of the kingdom of heaven, and still the generation ignores it. 
Look back at verse 7. Because here you'll see that John reveals, as he's, as he's telling people about Jesus, he reveals the greatness of the kingdom of heaven. John points out, or Jesus, excuse me, Jesus points out to the crowd the, the important part that John has played in this kingdom program. John pointed to the greatness of the kingdom with his life and with his words. And so I'm going to show you in these verses really five different ways that John revealed the greatness of the kingdom to the people Jesus is speaking to. The first way is in verses 7 through 9, he inaugurated, or excuse me, he demonstrated a different way of viewing the world. He embodied the values of the kingdom of heaven. I love what Jesus says. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? What did you go out to see? What then did you go out to see? Three different times, Jesus presses the issue. Why would Jesus ask that same question three times? Because he's challenging their expectation. What, did, what was it you thought you were going to see? Did you really think that this was going to be soft? Did you really think this was going to be easy? Do you have any idea what the kingdom of heaven coming into this world is going to look like? What were you expecting? The soft life is the life of kings. It's not the life of the kingdom. That's not what Jesus is doing. It's not what John is doing either. Because comfort, surprisingly, is not a kingdom value. So John represents the value of the kingdom of heaven by refusing comfort. I mean, think about it, right? What did he eat? Yeah, anybody signed up for this? Grasshoppers. Yeah, what did he wear? Like, none of you seem to be dressed in camel's hair. Ugh. John displayed the values of the kingdom by refusing comfort. The second way that he um, exposed the value of the kingdom of heaven was by preparing the way of the Lord. You see that in verse 10. He, in verse 10, he quotes Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And Jesus is telling us John is that person. He's that messenger. But then notice what it says in Malachi there. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come in his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And yes, John is the messenger, but Jesus is the one who comes suddenly. And John points to the eschatological day of the Lord, the end of the world. The end of the world begins when Jesus comes. And the question then is who can stand in that day? John heralds the inbreaking of the end. Jesus connects us then to the Old Testament as he says, 
Yes, John is that person who builds this bridge from the Old Testament. It says, though, uh, you can think of the prophets as this great ski jump. And John the Baptist is the skier who, who hits, their, who, who hits the, the jump and flies through the air until he gets to Jesus, right? He's the one that builds that bridge between the Old Testament and Jesus. And then we have the kind of a weird statement in verse 11. The third reason that, that John, or the third way that John highlights uh, the value of the kingdom of heaven. It says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's none arisen, or there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, I don't know how you read that, but that kind of makes no sense to me. That John, John is the greatest person to ever have a woman for a mom. Yet he's not as great as the least in the kingdom of heaven. This is really unusual. How does that even work? How can you be the greatest person to ever have a woman for a mom and be less than the least in the kingdom of heaven? And, I, and here, this, this is really where I'm getting the main idea of this, is that John is this transitional figure. He is the one from the old world, the old way of life, the old realm, who heralds life in the new realm, in this new kingdom. John was born in the old realm. And here's what Jesus is telling us. Life in this new realm, in this new kingdom, is so much greater than life in the old realm. That you can be the absolute best in the old realm, and you are the least in the new realm. That that's how much better the kingdom of heaven is than the kingdom of this world. So this really tells us more about the kingdom of heaven than it does about John himself. It speaks of the privilege of being included in the kingdom. It speaks of the glory of being associated with Jesus. And I say that because I think that most of us underestimate that, especially when it has to do with prison, especially when it has to do with things not working like they should. We really underestimate the value of being associated with the kingdom of heaven. I suppose you can think of it like this way, like this, that John is the one who announces the kingdom. Now, if you, I don't know if any of you are, are uh, fans of The Price is Right. But Vanna White is to John the Baptist as The Price is Right is to the kingdom of heaven. You're thinking, oh, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Seriously, Vanna White, doesn't, she doesn't win any money. Right? She just goes, and that's all there is. And see, that's what John the Baptist do. He is doing. He is the least in the kingdom in, in the kingdom of this world, or excuse me, the greatest in the kingdom of this world. Least in the kingdom of heaven. Less than the least in the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus is doing is he's comparing John 
the, the value of living in this world when John is the absolute greatest with the value of living in the kingdom of heaven when it is yours and you get to belong to Jesus. And so, Jesus tells us more about John and how John um, expresses the value of the kingdom of heaven in verse 12. Now, verse 12 is, is also a very unusual verse. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, this language is so unusual that I looked in a lexicon to find out the meaning of the words, right? A lexicon is a dictionary for another language, and so I look in the Greek lexicon, and I've never seen this before in my entire life. In 30 years of doing pastoral ministry, and 30 years of looking in the lexicon, I looked for this word, and it said, um, don't trust us. If you're going to find the meaning of this word, you better look in a commentary. And that's a dictionary, saying we don't, we're not going to tell you what this means. You're kind of on your own. You've got to talk to somebody else. Very unusual. But the language is unusual, isn't it? It's, uh, it's about the kingdom of heaven suffering violence and the violent taking it by force. And the, the trick here, I think, is that you, we have to decide kind of how to take these words. The, the word that I was looking up in the lexicon can mean either forceful or violent, okay? The uh, uh, NIV 84 translates it forceful, which is a fine translation. And uh, the ESV translates it um, violent. So we just got to decide, what is, how, does, how does that work? That's not the biggest problem, though. The biggest problem really is whether the... the the verb is passive or active. Is the kingdom of heaven being acted upon or is the kingdom of heaven itself doing something? Is it receiving the action or is it doing the action? Now, the turns out that the, the Greek word itself has the same form, so you really can't tell from the form. You have to decide from the context. So, in, acting, in asking the question, who then is violent and who is forceful and what are they actually doing, this is the way that I see this verse playing out. Seems to me that Jesus is using the same word in a couple different ways. The NIV 84 renders it this way, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. So it says the kingdom of heaven is doing the action, which I think is a good translation. Because that's what's been happening so far. So far, Jesus has been casting out demons. They've been powerless against him. He has been healing diseases. They've been powerless against him. Jesus has sent the disciples to do the same thing, and they've been powerless against them. The kingdom is advancing forcefully. People are joining in. People are believing. So I think it's the kingdom that's giving, that's doing the action. Then it seems to me that there are violent or forceful people who are uh, resisting or seizing this kingdom. They're trying to stop it. You can think of it as Newton's third law applied to the kingdom. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And so it seems to me that the most natural way to, to understand this unusual language 
is that the kingdom is advancing forcefully and people are coming against it with force. And that's the expectation Jesus is trying to address here. John is in prison. You shouldn't be surprised that people are coming against the kingdom. The rule of Jesus is something the rest of the world will not like to submit to. And then the final way that I think that John highlights the value of the kingdom here is verses 13 through 15, where it says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, if you're able to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, I mean, if I hope you're sympathetic, right, to, to my job here. I got to talk to you about the violent taking the kingdom, and I got to talk to you about Elijah, and you know, weird stuff here, right? I said that I complained about that to our staff who end up preaching every week, and they said, You did it to yourself. <laughs> you signed up to preach here, you picked the passage, it's your problem. So why does Jesus refer then to Elijah? What does Elijah have to do with anything? Those, those, of, you, those of you who were at our Seder dinner um, a couple months ago remember this, don't you? That we set an extra seat for Elijah at the table because they were looking for Elijah to come because he was going to bring about or he's going to herald the coming of this kingdom and of the day of the Lord. And so, we find again that Elijah is mentioned at the end of the book of Malachi. The last uh, word of God in the old realm. And so, Malachi chapter 4, beginning of verse 5 says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The end. Those are the last words of God before Jesus came. And so God is telling us that in the spirit of Elijah will come a prophet who will herald the coming day of the Lord. <clears throat> and so it's hard really to understate, or excuse me, hard to overstate what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is connecting his coming with the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord in the Old Testament was this, was this uh, day of fearsome judgment. This day that everyone must look forward to. That they must, in fact, prepare for. And so John is this transitional figure that, that heralds for us he makes straight the way of the Lord. He is like Elijah who comes before the great and final day. And so what John is doing in this heralding is telling us the kingdom of heaven is here. 
And it is the day of the Lord. It is. It is that dreadful day for those who do not know the Lord. It is that glorious day for those who do know the Lord. The kingdom of heaven, the day of the Lord, is here now. And, and, it's not yet here. And this is the pressure that all of us feel. It's here now, and it's not here now. Both. And so we find that we're invited into this kingdom. We're invited to be on the right side of history on the day of the Lord. We're invited into a kingdom that may not change your circumstances, but certainly will change you. And we're invited in to the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom of heaven grants you a relationship with the king. It grants you to be prepared for the day of the Lord. It changes your heart so that you're happy or blessed, regardless of your circumstances, like Jesus told us in the Beatitudes. And so John tells us this kingdom of heaven is so much better than anything you experience here. That if you end up in prison, you're still ahead. If you end up losing your head, you're still ahead. In fact, the kingdom of heaven, because John was its herald, because Jesus is its king, is greater than anything you can imagine. Yet, people ignore it. That's what we see in verses 16 through 19. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We sang a dirge. You didn't mourn. John came neither eating or drinking. They said, he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they said, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. So Jesus tells us a little children's story. As though he and John were the children in the marketplace. Doesn't matter what they do, whether they play or whether they sing, whether it's happy or whether it's sad, whether it's positive or negative, nobody seems to care. They don't dance, they don't mourn, they are unresponsive to the music of the kingdom. And then it tells us that Jesus or that John came and Jesus came. They came negatively not um, playing a dirge. They came positively playing dance music. Nothing happened. So they invited everyone to the meal in the kingdom. John, he didn't eat or drink. It didn't matter. They thought he had a demon. Jesus did eat and drink. It didn't matter. They, thought, they called him a glutton and a drunkard. And in this whole section, Jesus is highlighting the conflict between the current generation and the kingdom of heaven. Here he's highlighting just how far apart he is from the current generation. Now I want you to think about that. Because we've been talking about being kingdom citizens. Living in the kingdom. Expecting our lives to be different from those around us. 
And yet, when we're uncomfortable, when it's inconvenient, when we're hurt, we want to run and say, is this real? Does this really matter? Is what I'm doing here really worth it? And that is what Jesus is addressing here. Because, yes, you're, you're going to sing and people aren't going to dance. They're not going to recognize what you're offering them when you're offering them the kingdom. And Jesus is simply saying, you need to expect. Expect that people won't respond. Pray that they will. Brace yourself for when they won't. That's, that's what He told the disciples when He sent them out in chapter 10. And now again, He's saying, that's what, ha- what they did with John, it's what they did with me. They're missing completely this kingdom. You'll see more of it even in the, in the text for next week. On the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, Jesus' ministry of reconciliation extended far more broadly than this generation would have liked. Notice their complaint. You're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There are people who respond to the kingdom. They're just not the people that you think. They're just not the people, maybe, even, that you wish would respond. And that's a problem for you. And it does connect us to the main challenge, doesn't it? Because it's a challenge for those of us that think we're going to acquire the blessing of God by our good behavior. Here you have tax collectors and sinners who know there's no bargain with God. They know they have nothing to offer in a transaction with God. And that is part of the offense of the gospel. That the gospel comes without a bargain. It comes freely, without the possibility of any sort of exchange. And so are you going to believe then that the gospel comes freely or not? Are you going to believe then that the gospel comes to you apart from your performance? That's a problem we began with. And so when things don't work out for you, like you think that they should work out, do you give up? Do you jettison the whole thing? Do you go back and look for some different answer? I mean, John was sitting in prison wondering the same thing. Soon all of the disciples would scatter, and they'd wonder the same thing too. I think everyone who is serious about following Jesus is going to have to come to grips with this at one time or another. Because your answer really all turns on this. What do you think Jesus is doing in his kingdom? What do you think constitutes the good life? Is the good life a life in the kingdom of heaven? Do human beings flourish in the kingdom of heaven? Or do they flourish in doing their own thing? Is your Best life. One that follows Jesus or one that you make up on your own. 
And the interesting thing about this is you can't evaluate this. You can't really get the final answer with a short time horizon. Because when John heralded the kingdom of heaven, what he was saying is the end is here. Now, it's here now, and it's here not yet. And so you're caught in the in-between time. The end has begun, and the end is long. You're going to need a long horizon before you really get the benefit of being in the kingdom of heaven. And so we see John the Baptist herald of the greatest thing in the world, the kingdom of heaven, the rule of Jesus. So it's left for you to decide on good days and on bad days, when things are going well and when they're not, is the kingdom of heaven worth having? Is it worth having the kingdom of heaven when other things don't play out like you think they should? Is the kingdom of heaven worth having when it's uncomfortable? That's the point Jesus is driving home here to people who overheard Him comfort the disciples of John, that yes, in fact, he is the one. The blind have received sight. And the kingdom is here. Will you be part of it? Let's pray.